Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Brown Girl podcast. This show exists to provide representation for women of color in the environmental space, to highlight their stories, and to educate the masses about how to be more eco-friendly every day. From gardening to thrifting, minimalism to veganism, sustainable business owners to influencers, environmentalists to activists, we are all on a journey to taking better care of our bodies and our planet. I'm your host, Ariel Green. This episode is sponsored by Valdoho, a plastic-free safety razor brand. More about Valdoho later. There's no denying that Native people and Black people were traditionally stewards of the land in North America and fed its inhabitants for hundreds of years. In 1920, the number of Black farmers peaked at nearly 1 million people. However, a mere 100 years later, there are fewer than 50,000 Black farmers. Systematic racism within government programs has caused Black, Indigenous, people of color farmers to lose land funding over the years, resulting in food insecurity, a heap of health and financial disadvantages, not to mention a disconnection from Earth. In today's episode, I'm talking to an incredible woman who is working to uplift communities of color by providing access to farming resources, community fridges, and educational courses to help improve lives for generations to come. But before we get too deep into that, I want to remind you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to do on any Apple device. Just search for Sustainable Brown Girl Podcast and be sure to follow if you aren't already. Then scroll down to the review area and I'm sure you want to leave a five-star review, so go ahead and do it. It really helps us with getting more people to discover the show. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will feature it in an upcoming episode. If you're not already, be sure to follow Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and use the hashtag Sustainable Brown Girl to be featured on the page. I love seeing what everyone's up to, their sustainable swaps, their outfit inspo. So I love sharing that on Instagram. Also, if you didn't know, we record the video from almost all of our podcast interviews. So if you want to see the full video versions, head over to the Sustainable Brown Girl YouTube channel and subscribe. Sometimes our guests will show something to the camera that you obviously can't see if you're just listening to the audio. And it's so much fun to be able to see all of these Sustainable Brown Girls live. A link to the video for this episode is in the show notes. And with that being said, let's go ahead and get into this interview. Today's featured Sustainable Brown Girl is Amy Rose Fall an Indigenous and Eastern European farmer, activist, and food justice warrior. Amy Rose is the founder of Virginia Free Farm, which works to provide free, nutrients-dense food assistance to those in need, and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amy Rose. Thank you, Wulwini. <laughs> That's, uh, thank you, and Abenaki Stilwist. Yes, I love it. So, hey, let's just start there. Tell me about your background, your Native history, and how you became interested in farming. So, 
that's there's so many so many reasons why for me so food was used historically mm -hmm. as a weapon of war to exterminate my ancestors but food is also the great cross-cultural unifier for all cultures and so i've decided to kind of put that aside and not use not be stuck in that trauma porn that is really expected of a lot of us and that emotional labor that goes along with it. And instead of holding on to those traumas, to really use it for good to improve the fabric of my community. Not for me, because I know that I'm not gonna see the I'm not gonna see the fruits of my labor probably in my lifetime. But if I can change things for my children or my grandchildren or my friends' children to make our world a better place that's really my i guess that's my why yeah well i, I don't know if i can agree with you when you say that you're not going to see the fruits of your labor like just looking through your website you help so many families and communities and you know just people survive like that alone that's a huge difference you're making yeah, um, we started before the pandemic, actually. And then when the yeah. pandemic hit, we went from, I think, statistically on the USDA website, the um, food insecurity rate was between 10 and 13% for households. And during the pandemic, it was mm -hmm. almost 50%. Wow. And so we saw a lot of holes in the system. We have a large community of undocumented families here in this area. And Unfortunately, I know this is not across the board, but in my region, you had to register with the Department of Social Services to be able to go to the county food banks um, in the surrounding counties here. And so that was absolutely unacceptable to me. A lot of these people's children go to school with my kids. They are integral parts of the workforce. Not okay with me. So we ripped another garden and produced thousands and thousands more pounds of food to meet those wow. needs. Another hole that we found was our refugee families. We have resettled refugee families in this area. And um, even if they're here in the middle of their immigration paperwork, um, there was a problem with that because if they were married to an American citizen or they were somewhere in the middle of their immigration, they weren't um, eligible for the stimulus checks that we all got. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it, it being in a mixed status household, even if you were married to an American citizen, neither one of you would get it. And um, there was also problems with applying for different types of assistance that would derail their immigration paperwork. So we stepped up to the task and started supplying that community with the help of organizers. I don't do any of this alone. I wouldn't be able to do any of this without an army of amazing volunteers and yeah. my co-conspirators and collaborators of other um, nonprofits and organizations in the area to really get the food, meet the logistical needs. Because when I started this many years ago, I was not doing it wisely. I was trying to do everything myself and no one will, works harder than a woman that doesn't like asking for help. So Ooh, tell me I made myself it. a little crazy. <laughs> It was it was so hard. Um, so I made myself a little crazy the first year and then I got smart and then I reached out. And not only in reaching out did I discover there was a ton of people from across the community that wanted to help, enthusiastically wanted to help. And um, but those needs would be met. And then I ended up getting other people reaching out and donating. We had 
Polyhaven Farm um, that's run by an Afro-Indigenous couple that donated three head of cattle. Um, we had so many people. Heliocanthus Farm donated all of their leftover produce from their CSAs. We had lending hands, reaching out, wanting us to work with the ladies getting out of the Department of Corrections to teach skills. Um and gardening is therapy. And not only were they able to feed themselves, but we were able to help prevent recidivism by engaging in that work. And then we started working with the McShin Foundation, which is a network of, I think it's 13 houses in total, but they have land attached to those houses where people go through intensive inpatient rehab services. And in that, they're able to receive livestock donations from us and mother something other than themselves, learn skills, get great nutrition that's good for your mind and your body. And, um, you know, it was just overall holistic well-being from those folks. They not only fed themselves, but they actually were able to get some of their excess produce into the community and kind of keep it going. It's been really beautiful, really beautiful. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it's great to see so many different organizations and people come together to make a difference on a wider scale, you know, because like you said, you can only do so much by yourself. It really takes a community of people to really make a difference. Yeah. And the thing is, we don't just provide nutritional support top down because that doesn't work for anybody. That doesn't Mm -hmm. solve any problems. Um, So what we do is we actually equip all of our families and organizations, not only with nutritional uh, support, but with the education, resources, if they need tools, hosing, things like that, plants and seeds and support with volunteers um, to help them successfully grow. And during 2020, actually by July of 2020, all of our individual families and many of our community organizations that we work with were able to, they didn't need us anymore for their weekly donations of actual food goods. They were producing more than they needed and basically told us to stop, move on, um, which was amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, so what has been your experience with helping people learn how to grow? You know, cause I have, I have a couple of raised beds at a community garden. I try to grow things out on my balcony and, um, you know, when I talk to people about gardening, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have a green thumb or I don't have the space or whatever. So what how do you get people like more involved with that if they feel like they have limitations? Oh, so we actually have a number of ways um, that we do that. We've got we're working with Agribility and one of our offshoot nonprofit farms is growing inclusivity. And so what we're doing with them um is basically we're working with food students or food uh, system students, engineering students, that is agribility to create adaptive tools if they have mobility problems or disabilities. We are helping with volunteers. I mean, we work with the Richmond Indigenous Society, which is basically, um, it's an organization started by my elder, Vanessa Bolin, in Richmond City proper um, in Northside. So she feeds, we've created this like little oasis in the heart of Richmond and she feeds the community of Northside, but she can't do it alone because none of us can do it alone. Um, And, you know, for her, it was labor that was a limiting factor. And um, so we mobilized the troops, so to say, and it was so beautiful. We would have 
a whole van full of students from Virginia Tech out there helping. We had people, for, we had a Lenape elder, a Chata kid. We had students from the Congo that were here at um, Virginia Tech getting their PhD. So many people. And we would hit that garden, jump back in the van, go to the MLK Urban Agriculture Center, hit that garden. Um and just kind of keep it going. And people were so excited to help. So we don't ever leave anyone out on an island by themselves. Because, you know, you think about it like your hair, I guess. If you pull one strand, it's really weak. But if you braid your, your mm -hmm. hair together, it's strong and it doesn't break. And that's right. really what we're trying to foster is community and empowering folks through knowledge um, and education and assistance and so many of those things. We don't ever leave anyone out to dry or on their own. And we want people to feel a sense of community and a sense of family because, you know, I guess it's kind of, I'm going to sound cliche and cheesy in saying this, but it's, um, so traditionally our, our farmers were women from our tribes, at least in the Northeast. I mean, I'm not saying that all native people are a monolith. We're all so different. And like, I think, what is there now? 575 recognized tribes. And then I don't even know how many recognized state tribes, but we're all so different. We all have different cultures and customs, but a lot of the farmers were always women. And a lot of us also have a culture of sharing and community. And that culture of sharing and community were what kept the colonists from starving to death. And I guess in a way, and this is the cheesy part, I feel like I'm kind of keeping that custom of generosity and sharing alive that belonged to my many great grandmother's past that like helped birth this nation in a way that yes. was destructive for us. But at the same time, look what it's led to and look at how many beautiful people live in this country. Now there are so many people that are willing to do good and want to make a better world. So we're just rounding them all up. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah, you definitely are keeping the, you know, the 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 tradition going. <laughs> so that's I'm awesome. Trying. That's Yeah, no, that's really beautiful. So, um so when you're helping people, you know, like grow things, it, it sounded like it's typically like in a community garden type thing, or do you help people like at their homes too? So we do individual families too. Um, all of our individual families actually don't need us anymore, which is a wonderful thing. But yeah, um, yeah we do work with anybody, individuals, families, organizations, schools. Schools are really important, especially because um, everything that's going on with the climate crisis right now is, mm -hmm. it's beyond me that people even still deny it absolutely crazy. But children right. that are exposed to nature and gardening at an early age are statistically more environmentally conscious adults when they grow up. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important for me because, you know, the land was our home originally. And I mean, it still is our home. We Like no matter what kind of city or conurbation or apartment building you live in, we all as human beings evolved in nature. And we yeah. really can't be extricated from it when it really gets down to it. So making sure that kids are educated, that's really, really important to me too. And that kids are involved in growing their own food. Project Black that I'm starting with my sister from the Women's Earth Alliance, 
So Lavisha and I have been trying to hatch this crazy plan, a number of crazy plans. We have more in the works, but Lavisha is the founder of C5 and um, we were both in the 2020 uh, accelerator for Women's Earth Alliance and they're women from all over the place. I mean, we had girls from Guam in our cohort, wow. but we just happened to live close to each other. So we just decided to have lunch one day and we had talked a lot and started co-conspiring on these, this um, project because she was really annoyed with the fact that like uh, her great grandparents and her grandmother had land and they farmed, but she had been divorced from the land and mm. wanted that back. She wanted that legacy back. I mean, in world war two, 40% of Virginia's farmers were black. And there was this great land grab on the East Coast from Black farmers and Native folks, and we didn't have anything left. I mean, she's Afro-Indigenous. She's actually Chickahominy and African-American, and she wanted that back. And she knew that I was working with local universities and the USDA and now the Smithsonian to really get our plant matter back. And mm -hmm. she was not enrolled in her tribe. She wasn't connected to the land through farming um, from the African-American side of her family. And so we hatched this crazy plan to get the youth. I want to say when I say youth, I mean like 20s and 30 somethings getting out of high school and in young adulthood, not really knowing what they're doing, not wanting to take on a lot of debt, wanting a reconnection. So we ended up working together to craft this agricultural in internship for through c5 and project black with virginia free farm running the ag part of it and i rounded up some sponsors we got atlantic building constructors involved and we created we're creating a program we're actually going tomorrow to map the, everything out on site we've got 100 acres an old school that's been decommissioned but it's structurally sound and we are doing internship projects for ag uh, electrical, HVAC, plumbing, carpentry, masonry, and I feel like I'm forgetting something, but we got the community involved and we're going to be providing free job training for all these folks. Wow. And we're going to build a black main street on the premises with a farm, a hostel and a retreat center so that once these folks go through our, um, apprenticeship programs that they have jobs secured, they can either start their business there on the premises mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. hostel and retreat center, which will generate income and keep the project going beyond the few years we got funding for and keep those youth here that are valuable, keep them connected to the land, keep them working, give them pride in Charles city County and themselves and not have to be burdened with crazy debt. I mean, you know, Lavisha is saddled with um, student loan debt. I was lucky and I didn't have very much, but that was because I joined the army because I didn't have money. My family didn't come from money. Native folks serve at 10 to 15% in the armed forces, generally because wow. of poverty. Poverty is a great recruiter for the military. I didn't want to do that, yeah. you know, but mm -hmm. to have a future, that was what I needed to do. And, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. And I don't want anyone else to have to feel like that. And Lavisha yeah. doesn't want anybody else to have to incur $100,000 in student debt because, I mean, she's got a master's in green architecture. So that was wow. what she needed to do. Um, yeah. So basically, we're trying to take all the things we learn and create a system that's better for people in the future so they don't have to go through that stuff that we had to go through. 
Exactly. Wow. Oh my gosh, that is so freaking exciting. You said a hundred acres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred acres, wow. and it's a purchase, not a lease. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> that is huge. You are going to yeah. help so many people like with their future careers and learning about, you know, agriculture and developing skills that, you know, they can go in and help other people. That's so exciting. Yeah. Right now, I think we have like 0.01% native growers and 1.3% wow. black growers. The food system is so messed up and like the power dynamics are so messed up here. So we're going to try to change it. We're going to work from the inside out to change that. Yeah. So is your goal just to be working with native and um, black and I guess people of color? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much what we're going to be trying to do. Um, and I'm hoping that we can uh, get with the Department of Labor to provide stipends for the students actually going through the program to be able to pay, be paid themselves just for doing the training. I think that's to make it really sustainable. And I want to remove all the barriers, you know, because people have kids, they have side jobs, they have a million other things going on. Sometimes they have lack of transportation. And if we can get somebody eight or $10,000, it could buy that used car that could get them to school all the time or allow them to be able to have um, childcare, to be able to go to school and make things. We want to remove all of those barriers that have been put in place purposely by legislation, by the powers that be, by racism in our class structure and our jobs and our education. Um, yeah, we just want to turn it around. You know, they say that there are I think it's 250 years between black families and white families wealth gap and mm -hmm. something similar for native and Latinx people. Why should we let the Titanic turn itself when we can hire a tugboat to turn that thing around tomorrow? Preach. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, like LaVisha and I were talking about it the other day. A lot of people talk. Talk doesn't get you anywhere. Talk doesn't change anything. It doesn't create real hope. Um, Real hope in action is because theory, okay, so I guess what I want to say is like theory doesn't do anything without direct action. Talk is yeah. cheap. A lot of people want to talk and get a platform and be talking about it, but they don't want to do about or do anything about it. They don't want to do the hard work or be the boots on the ground. But hope in action is created by those people that are boots on the ground doing the hard work. It sucks. You see on the news, water protectors and land defenders getting beaten by police and arrested and everything like that assaulted, mm -hmm. but some of them are still here. We're still here, just like Native people. We're still here. We're not an invisible thing or like somewhere living in your memory and textbooks and beads and buckskin. We are st still very much still here. And yes. even if there's one person still here doing the work, that's hope in action. And that inspires people. If you can inspire people by hope in action and being that example, if we can inspire just one more person to do the work, we're doing something. We're leaving a legacy. And that's really what we want to do is to inspire more people to do this work. We know that we can't get anywhere alone on an island, but I mean, mm -hmm. just today we were able to talk to the uh, owner of one of the biggest construction companies in the state of Virginia. And 
he basically was like, yes, we're going to do this. We'll help you. We'll pay for upgrades to the building and we'll provide you instructions for your or st- instructors for your building trades. That's hope in action. Wow. And all you have to do is just stand up there and be willing to put yourself out there. Yes, exactly. Wow. That is so incredible. Oh my gosh. So when is um, everything supposed to be starting? Like when do classes start and all that? We're actually hoping to start next month. <laughs> what? It's, yeah, Lavisha talked to the um, the folks. Like lawyers were going back and forth and negotiating the contract. Lavisha made everything happen with that. Um, mm-hmm. I was just originally doing the ag part, and then today the opportunity arose to get actually a friend of mine from the army from like twenty years ago that happens to work with Atlantic Instructors. We happen to be on the phone, and I was talking to him about Project Black, and he's like, "Wait." The owner's sitting next to me. You're really hard to get a hold of. I'm handing him the phone. <laughs> and it just happened. So, wow. you know, we're lucky, I guess. Not necessarily lucky, but smart. And opportunities arise and we take advantage of those opportunities. Because originally this started out as we wanted to do a green tiny house community in Petersburg with a food forest interplanted with wraparound services for folks in that area that because it's a really profound high poverty rate area wraparound services for education job training um, transportation mental health care uh, physical health care child care all of that to really pull that area out of poverty the same way that you know, the Titanic uh, kind of metaphor that I used. Um, But we were having a really hard time getting legislators to buy into our plans, even though, you know, LaVisha already had all the sketches and drawings done. And if you were to hire an architectural engineer like her, you'd be paying tens of thousands of dollars. We were really willing to put ourselves out there to do the work and to organize and get community buy-in. We were having a hard time. It's not really a surprise because, you know, the laws that set up the system we all live in are not going to dismantle themselves. We need to get inside and kill it from within, you know? So Mm -hmm. we did it. It took a couple years longer than we we expected. And it wasn't exactly how we originally envisioned, but it's a start and we're getting there. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I just can't even... Now for a quick ad break. This episode is sponsored by Valdoho, a plastic-free safety razor brand. For people who shave regularly, switching to a metal razor will cut down on so much waste being produced in your shave routine. The Valdoho safety razor is made to last forever with high quality materials and stainless steel blades that are recyclable. I was nervous when I first used a safety razor But once you get comfortable with it, you'll realize that it's safer and more efficient than disposable razors. Since using the Valdoho razor, I've noticed that I'm not getting razor burn and I'm getting a closer shave. So if you're ready to make the switch to a Valdoho safety razor, visit valdoho.com. That's W-L-D-O-H-O.com and use the code Arial10 to save 10% off your purchase. Thanks, Valdoho, for sponsoring this video. Now let's get back to this amazing conversation. 
So, so you have Virginia Free Farm, you have Project Black. Is there anything else that you're working on? I mean, you're already pretty busy. Like, I feel bad just oh my gosh, that. So <laughs> many, oh my gosh, so many amazing things. Um, one of my favorite actually is not even run by me um, because I like to, I don't know, we have these crazy ideas. I shouldn't say crazy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's maybe a little bit uh, um, self-deprecating. But a couple of years ago, one of our board members was like, hey, I was reading about this free fridge program and um, and I don't even remember where it was. Let's start it. So that same person I talked to today that happens to work at Atlantic Constructors, I was talking to him and he offered to throw down one refrigerator a month for an entire year if we could get it going. Right. Okay. So I was actually on Instagram and I just searched hashtag community fridge or free fridge or something. And I met this amazing young woman, Taylor Scott from Richmond. She had just graduated from VCU. She was working at a COVID lab at night, third shift. I messaged her. She had a page put up for RVA community fridges, but they hadn't like launched any fridges yet. And I got a farm. I got people willing to donate refrigerators. She wants to do it. I hit her up on Instagram. 15 minutes later, we were on the phone and she is like amazing. She's doing so well. And it's like, not only were we filling the refrigerator from the community gardens that we steward with all of these volunteers and Mm -hmm. our food from our fridges, but she made it such a good program. Basically, we just like took the fridge donations and passed it off to her. She's running the program and is the founder of RVA Community Fridges. Um, But she has like total community buy-in from everyone in the neighborhood of these fridges. And the great thing about it is she's providing school supplies to kids in need. She's providing uh, little free pantries with the refrigerators, meat, vegetables, bread. She's gotten uh, bakeries in the area to, instead of throwing away their bread at the end of the day, goes into the community fridges. And the great thing about that is everyone deserves the dignity of a good meal. You know, I really think, I really believe that food is a human right. Mm -hmm. And we all evolved in these tribal communities to take care of each other for a purpose. It was survival and it benefited everyone. It drew us together in family and clans, no matter where you come from, whether your family is from Mongolia or Ireland or North America, we were all tribal people at once, but we've forgotten who we are. She has literally, her name's Taylor Scott, by the way, so look her up if you're listening to this. So um, she has created all of these little tribes in these areas and people in the neighborhood can go to these community fridges in dignity, anonymously, get whatever they need, and get it to go. And having the ability to create access to free, fresh food and healthy food mm-hmm. is really important, especially because, like, you know, the Black community and the Native community and the Latinx community, they're among the highest for disease rates, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, coronary mm-hmm. artery disease, because we live in these areas with no grocery stores and no access to good quality food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been sitting around for no like that's sorry i misspoke saying we've been sitting around people have not been sitting around organizing has been going on for more than a century but it's gone on far too long without meaningful really impactful change in our neighborhoods in our communities 
So she did the thing and people were able to go out and get fresh food in areas where there are no grocery stores. Um, and it's beautiful. We started the MLK urban agriculture uh, center last year on acreage that the Richmond public school district didn't even know that they had, which is shocking. Oh, no. well, yeah. I know. And it's in a, like it's situated right in the middle of a housing project with 80% poverty rate, 15% profound poverty rate, and no grocery store for several miles. And think about, like, I have kids. They're older now, so they're pains in the butt in different ways than younger children are. And I can't imagine, like, the only place you can go says, like, beer, lotto tickets, fried chicken, 40s, and EBT. But there's no fresh Mm -hmm. food in there. So mm-hmm. Taylor's got a community fridge there and we set up a, um, a garden with four tracks. We've got a Mesoamerican garden, um, an agriculture garden, a native garden and a Caribbean garden to reflect the community. So it's culturally appropriate food right in the middle of this housing district or housing um, complex and folks can walk over. And like, I don't know about you, but if you've got a young child and you don't have access to a grocery store and you have to take public transportation miles away to lug 40 pounds of groceries home when your two and a half year old may or may not throw a fit and refuse to walk or some other such thing. That's not mm-hmm. sustainable. And it's not good for the mental well-being of those moms in those neighborhoods at all. And, you know, there's programs in every state. Our state has Virginia Fresh Match. So women on SNAP can go get double their food dollars at the farmer's market. But the problem with that also is those farmer's markets are in affluent communities generally on Saturday mornings. Yeah. They're not accessible. The women are working on Saturday mornings. So that was another thing we did when I started really assessing the things that we could change practically in our community Mm -hmm. here. We ripped another garden in the front two acres of our farm and got in touch with the Rotary Club. And you're like, those are just a bunch of old dudes that have nothing better to do. They're retired. (laughs) And so we got a mobile reader from the USDA and got approved to accept SNAP. So those women can actually just email it, email me, call me, what have you, text me orders. Uh, we will pick, pack fresh produce for them right there on the spot. So it's literally coming right out of the ground onto their children's wow. plates. The rotary guys will come pick it up and deliver it to their doorstep so they don't even have to interrupt their lives. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> like I'm getting chills. Like, seriously, that is so beneficial like that like i said earlier you are changing lives like it's crazy it's i it's not yeah yeah i'm very well it didn't sit well for me you know like i don't know it the reserve system my family's from quebec so we have reserves instead Uh of reservations but it's the same Uh you can't own anything there's no general intergenerational wealth because you can't own a house to pass it on to your kids to create that intergenerational wealth there's lack of jobs, opportunity, things like that. And I started really thinking about um, the programs that are available to help. I'm going to say that in air quotes. Um, And I don't mean to say that. And like, I don't think legislators and policymakers and the people that are creating these programs are sitting around twirling their mustache and wringing their hands going, I know what I do, what I'll do. I'll create this program that's not really useful, you know, or accessible but a lot of them i think they're well-meaning but they can't put themselves in our shoes Mm -hmm. so the architecture of the programs don't really necessarily serve everyone 
And that's really kind of like the, um, the impetus for that. And also the impetus for what um, Lavisha and I are trying to do. And finally starting this year with project black, because we've both been in crummy situations and we had a really long conversation about how these programs don't serve us. So we need Mm -hmm. to create our own programs to appropriately serve the community in ways that preserves dignity and empowers people and isn't the whole host of hoops you have to uh, jump through and condescension you have to deal with sometimes at social services or what have you. So we took it upon ourselves to change that. It took some doing, but we made it happen finally. Yeah, definitely. You were a woman who was just on it. So (laughs) how, you know, every community needs someone like you. And, you know, how, how would you tell someone who's interested in maybe, you know, being a pillar in their community like you to, like, how would you tell them to get started? What advice would you give them? Oh my gosh. So it's actually not as hard as it sounds. Like, I know it sounds like I'm doing all of these things. It's actually really easy and it sounds silly, but I actually use Calendly to organize everything and get everyone Mm -hmm. on track. Um, Calendly and the Google Drive, so easy to keep people organized that way. Um, And if they have questions about logistics or how things work, they can just email me or go to the Virginia Free Farm website and fill out the contact form because I would be so happy to see this replicated all across the country because what we do is essentially really easy and it can be replicated anywhere. Um, I mean, we, even our tribal gardens that we're doing, one of the things that we have problems with here and that Lavisha and I have talked in depth about is there's been an alienation of the uh, Afro indigenous family members um, in tribal like council government enrollment And so we're working to heal that too. We started setting up these tribal gardens and we're adding two more tribal gardens this year for federally recognized tribes here. But we noticed, and she actually experienced this with her tribe, um, there's not as much engagement or acceptance of the Afro-Indigenous community. That doesn't sit right with me because we're all family. If you have even a drop of Indigenous blood in your body, you're our kin. And... Mm -hmm we can't be whole as a family until all of our family members are brought in. So we had, you know, at the Rappahannock garden, the Rappahannock tribe is super accepting of everyone. And we had conversations about that. And with a girl, a Pamunky girl that lives here that is also Afro-Indigenous. And she was distressed because she wanted that part of her heritage because she wanted to pass it on to her kids too. And so we actually organized community garden days with, those folks in the area that felt alienated or felt like they wouldn't be um, accepted with the Rappahannock because the Rappahannock tribe is rad. And um, so we had like Nansamon folks that were Afro-Indigenous that were not um, being engaged properly and not getting that sense of community. And so we started organizing all of these things, but it's really, really easy. And if anyone wants to do the same thing, just reach out to me. I would be more than happy to share because it's so important. And it's so important to create that unity and community for our kids and keep yeah. spreading the love. That sounds so cheesy, but no, food I is love. love. Food is the love language of my grandmothers. And I yeah. want to share that love with everybody. 
Yes, yes. And um, I, just to touch back on one of the things that you mentioned earlier about land. So how I think that's a really big barrier, too. So how did you go about getting the land and the um, and the neighborhood that you were telling us about and then also the land for Project Black? Like, can you offer tips? On oh, God, this is a loaded question. Do you really want to know? Um, yeah. <laughs> OK, so um I've been like talking nonstop because I get so crazy and on my soapbox about these things because it matters so much to me. Um, There was a number of different ways, which may or may not be frowned upon. So, um, so like the MLK Urban Agriculture Center, I was driving around there and it was after Taylor Scott had gotten her first fridge at uh, Pomona Plants, which is now, Pomona's actually closed and it's something else, but it's in the neighborhood of MLK or, or elementary. So it's the worst performing uh, school in Virginia and it had seven and a half acres or 7.8 acres behind it that had football fields and um, bathrooms and baseball diamonds and then beautiful big fields that were flat. So perfect for growing mm-hmm. all sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hadn't done anything with it in six years. So, and they weren't really being responsive at city council meetings or school board meetings. So we basically used a tree service to start dropping chips. And I reached out to my friend Bryce, whose family had gone to VSU, which is a, uh, HBCU here in Virginia, that's a land grant university that focuses on ag. Um, he's actually the one that's going to meet me in a couple days down there and his family's Caribbean. So we wanted to do a Caribbean garden. We got, um, one of my girlfriends that is from central, central America to steward the Mesoamerican garden. I'm doing the native garden, which is the only thing that I have a right to do. And then, um, we got, uh, the RVA gardening club odyssey, to start with the Africulture Garden so that there was representation in the community. And we just did it. Like, guerrilla gardening just did it. It was a little risky, but we did it, and it was beautiful. And then we had the students from Native at Virginia Tech coming out once in a while to help volunteer for maintenance and planting. We had woofers come out. Um, and then I walked around the grounds with a couple of stu- school board members because at that point uh-huh. in time, we had improved the ground. It was doing something good for the community, and they had to bear witness to what they were too afraid to do. Mm-hmm. And they had to either give me an MOU that I could be there as long as I held the insurance on it. Because insurance for okay. a community garden was really reasonable. I think it was like $100 a year. Totally worth it, oh. you know? Yeah. I mean, think of the groceries that you could buy for $100 a year versus what we put out. Right. Um, so at that point in time, I had them cornered because she would have been the bad guy if she uh-huh. wouldn't have acquiesced. <laughs> our request to be able to be there so last august we had the i have a dream festival for uh martin luther king and um had the whole community come out and had hot dogs and all sorts of stuff or which is a re-entry program um doing outreach and raffling off bicycles for kids in the area and people could see the garden and then so that was one then there's Mm -hmm. community roots garden that is the um Richmond Indigenous Society. And so that's had a lot of, uh, it got notice of VCU, which is our big main um, college in Richmond. And they've been doing some classes out there. My elder, Vanessa Bolin, had this dream. Um, Where are you located? Are you in the Southeast? Atlanta. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you know what kudzu is then, right? 
No, I don't. Oh my gosh. It's this, um, it's an invasive species from Asia that has like eaten the South in many rural areas. Um, okay. And <laughs> so crazy. So um, if you Google kudzu, K-U-D-Z-U, it's mm-hmm. shocking the pictures that will come up. So there was a kudzu um, area that was like taking over some, like an abandoned city lot, but it was a pretty good sized abandoned city lot behind her house. And so she rallied up a bunch of college students in the area during the protests. Um, she was acting as a street medic to make sure that the protesters were safe. She, you know, had contact with a lot of people. Then she started teaching um, street medic classes to be able to further empower the community to make sure that those protesters were protected and safe and looked out for and taken care of. And then she got a lot of people to buy into the food justice movement that she had envisioned behind her house, but it was all overgrown with kudzu and it's really hard to eradicate too, which is why it's so invasive. She got all these college kids and people in the neighborhood to rip out all that kudzu. We got mulching done, garden done, compost beds done. And now this is going into the third season. Huge amounts of produce come out of that garden. There's chickens back there. We preserve very rare native cultivars and then pass them out to other tribal members to save them from extinction because of a lot of our foods. I mean, like, you know, you go to the grocery store, you got maybe 30 different kinds of vegetables across the country, pretty uniform, right? Yeah. There's so much more to native food than just that. Mm -hmm. So we got that going. And then I had Virginia Public Media come in and interview me there with Chief Ann from the Rappahannock, who is the longest and first serving female hereditary chief in Virginia. And so that got us state attention. And we've run in the city. So we cornered them the same way because Mm -hmm. there was nothing there. I mean, we cleaned up broken bricks and glass and I don't know, I think 27 baseballs that were uh, some of them probably from the Korean War back there cleaned up the community and the community goes and they can go there and they can garden and they can get whatever they want for free whenever they want to. And the beautiful thing is like I've been there with volunteers and there's like 80 year old men and like eight year old children, not related. Some of them are white. Some of them are native. Some of them are black all interacting and all volunteering together. And the good thing is that intergenerational transfer of knowledge that used to be customary to Afro people or African people and indigenous people, um, you know, and in the Latinx community too. Um, But that used to be our traditional uh, transfer of knowledge. And now it's like across, across demographics and across generations in this area of Richmond and You know, and another thing we wanted to do, you know, the MLK Urban Agriculture Garden, that's in like the highest crime area of um, Richmond. There was like someone murdered outside my garden um, a couple of weeks before I had a group of Virginia Tech students coming. And but when we get all of these community members together, like different generations working together, it's a lot Mm -hmm. harder to do violence against someone when you know their grandma or you know their mom Mm -hmm. or your niece is out there digging in the dirt with you. Yes. And we don't, like a lot of people don't know their neighbors in modern Mm -hmm. day America. You know what I mean? A lot of people, especially during the pandemic, people don't go outside. But so we created these areas where people can go outside, get healthy, transfer knowledge, learn about each other, get comfortable with each other. 
And hopefully that'll help mend the community too. There's so many aspects of it because if you just donate food, like a food pantry, and I'm not knocking food pantries, if you just donate food, that's like putting a bandaid on a bullet hole. Not going to change anything. They have to be grassroots movements from the bottom up and top down at the same time. And you need to take care of everyone's needs because you know, food is medicine. There's another cliche coming out of me today, but food is medicine. And in traditional native culture, you don't sell medicine. Obviously, that's not the culture we grow up in. But if we can get some of it out there or empower people through education and learning to be able to provide their own food, save seeds, grow food, pass it on to their neighbors in kindness, um, we can create like a uh, an example of an alternative system that works that people can see working in action to be able to check out of that system. Because right now, as it is, we're nothing more than hamsters on a wheel traded from mm-hmm. big egg to big pharma. They keep us sick to line yeah. the rich people's pockets. Yeah. Maybe that's oversimplification of it. But unless we do something for ourselves, like the master's tools are never going to dismantle the master's house. That's just the right. way we live, you know? Right. Um, so we're trying it. Project Black was yeah. legit, though. That's like a leap grant that LaVisha wrote <laughs> and got. And, and that's like, we weren't guerrilla gardening and forcing yeah. uh, city officials or school, school board members to uh, bend to our will. But, you know, a lot of times you have to do that mm-hmm. um, by any it's means necessary. Method. I mean, right. <laughs> we weren't busting yeah. kneecaps or anything like that, but we were creating beautiful examples of what could be. Exactly for people that were either too busy or unwilling to do it themselves or didn't have the visioning or forward thinking to do it for themselves or didn't care enough about the community because Uh like with the MLK urban agriculture center, there was very much like a few years of um, Rick from the Pocahontas project trying to push them, the school board in the city to get movement on doing it, you know, traditional means asking. Uh What do they say about asking? Mm-hmm. do first ask forgiveness later um so he was trying to do it the right way but it wasn't working and somebody needed to do something about it you know and you just had to do what you had to do yeah here you are <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome yeah wow so yeah that's a method gorilla gardening find a little plot in your neighborhood that has been abandoned and just you know make it your own if you can you know do it yeah do it safely <laughs> but yes yes <laughs> yeah that works yeah and the I seeds like that are saved Like, so Uh it doesn't just benefit our community. The seeds that are saved from all of these gardens and our main farm, I live on the main farm. So the seeds Mm -hmm. that are saved from all of these projects actually go across the country from essential food and medicine in Oakland, California, to El Departamento de la Comida in Puerto Rico and all over the place. Gila River Reservation to Tuscarora Reservation in New York, all over the place. Freely. So that other, and we recently started sending things to Well Blessings in Houston, all over the place to grow free food. So I'm not sure whether they're doing the same things we're doing, but it's easy to do. And, you know, I don't know. I'm a fat kid at heart. I love food. And um, (laughs) 
anybody that wants seeds or wants education for growing, reach out to me because I will give you everything that you need and help you with the organ organization of replicating this because it's so doable. It's so easy. There's a guy, um, he's living in Maryland right now, but he's from Liberia and he contacted me recently. And what he wants to do is learn what we're doing here in Virginia and take that back with him when he goes back to Liberia and create a Virginia free farm in Liberia to feed his community because wow. he saw the powerful transformation um, that could be capable here. Yeah, right. Wow. Look at you inspiring people. And I know some people listening will also be inspired. So thank you so much for making yourself available to people for education and advice. Like that's invaluable. So um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate no, okay. you coming on today. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You probably so have to much. cut me off because I am one of those people that will like get on my soapbox or soapbox about food apartheid and food sovereignty and food justice. And if you let me go, I will go for hours. Yes, I, got I love to say. it. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. We need to hear what you're saying. And thank you again so much for sharing your thoughts and, you know, and your your knowledge and everything. So um, my last question for you is what does being a sustainable brown girl mean to you? Empowering others, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard work. It's not like this is not a career for me or a personal endeavor. It's hard work. I guess so. And to create a community that can take care of itself. Um, Because our mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers, they've passed on this legacy to us. And even in the seeds that we plant, those are gifts from our grandmothers um, to give to our children and our children's children and share with our sisters. And that's the most important thing that we can do. That's what we're here for. Yes. Yes, well said. I love it. You are definitely making history, whether you think you are or not. It's incredible. <laughs> it's inspiring. And I, you know, I just know that you're doing amazing things for your community and like the world pretty much like, you know, so yes, thank you so much. And tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support your work and all that. So you can find us at virginiafreefarm.org or at Virginia Free Farm with on Facebook or Instagram. And um, yeah, just check it out. Volunteer. Yes. yes. Trade yes. seeds with us. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Amy Rose. It's been such a pleasure. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you, Wimini. If you want to keep the conversation going, follow us at Sustainable Brown Girl on Instagram and Facebook. Check out the website at sustainablebrowngirl.com and send any questions, comments, or topic ideas to podcast at sustainablebrowngirl.com. Be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Donate to Patreon if you can, and be sure to watch the full video interview on YouTube. Until next time, let's continue to make better choices for the health of our bodies and the planet. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Valdoho for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to use the code ARIEL10 for 10% off your safety razor purchase. Links are in the show notes.